Welcome to Aaron Menke's Cabinet of Curiosities, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild. Our world is full of the unexplainable. And if history is an open book, all of these amazing tales are right there on display, just waiting for us to explore. Welcome to the Cabinet of Curiosities. Among the many stories told of lost cities, a few stand out. Plato spoke of a fictional island known as Atlantis, which boasted a powerful navy that attacked Athens but was defeated and eventually lost to the ocean. Legends about the tribal chief of the Musca people in Colombia have changed over the years. At first, the chief was a single man covered in gold. Over time, the stories about the chief became stories about a great city, then an entire kingdom made of gold, known simply as El Dorado. But as far as we can tell, they're all just stories. Though they have taken on lives of their own through various retellings and with the help of popular culture, they are no truer than they were thousands of years ago. However, not all lost cities are fake. One was found in India in 1975, though its creator probably wished it had stayed lost. This place, known as the Divine Kingdom of Sukrani, was discovered in the city of Chandigarh in northern India. How it had gone hidden for so long is a mystery, as the kingdom had stretched across 12 acres. Indian authorities who toured the site didn't know what to expect, but were surprised by their findings. Much of the kingdom had been comprised of large stone sculptures. One area was home to a piece known as the Dancing Girls, which was made up of dozens of stone statues similar in height. Their skirts were all different, some in black, others adorned with white or blue fragments of unknown origin. Deeper into the kingdom, waterfalls cascaded over rocks into small rivers and lagoons, which were bordered on both sides by stone pathways. A temple-like structure had been erected over one of the waterfalls, and rocky bridges spanned the rivers to allow passage from one side to the other. Rocks had also been arranged into animal shapes, such as cows and birds, which had been placed across the land in herds. Ornate mosaics, comprised of tiny ceramic pieces, adorned walls and walkways, All of these creations, made of pebbles, rocks, and boulders, gave the city its other nickname, the Rock Garden of Chandigarh. Walking along its surprisingly sturdy paths was a joy as explorers took in the sights of elaborate carvings and statues, all of which had been erected on a tract of land that had gone unnoticed for ages. There were so many individual structures to see, it was hard to know how many people it had taken to build the kingdom. Well, one person knew. His name was Nek Chand, and he had built the whole thing himself. Nek Chand came from simple means. Born in modern-day Pakistan, Chand worked as a roads inspector for the Chandigarh Public Works Department in 1951. An architect known as Le Corbusier had been hired to design Chandigarh as the first planned city in India. It was set to become the new capital of Punjab. Chand would ride his bicycle several miles from his home in Chandigarh, where he supervised the construction of the city's new highways. But Chand wasn't only a roads inspector, he was also a collector. He liked to pick up small rocks and stones on his commute, items he described as both ancient and alive, and deposit them in a nearby gorge. His job at the public works allowed him to access the tools and materials the workers used to build the roads, and the local dump provided him with even more elements to incorporate into his vast creation. Chandigarh's construction had caused the demise of two nearby villages, whose homes and personal belongings had been tossed away. 
Of course, you know what they say. One man's trash is another man's art installation. Beginning in 1957, he worked under the cover of night, assembling his sculptures and archways out of the rocks, bathroom sinks, forks, knives, and other refuse. He did all of this far from the prying eyes of his supervisors in Chandigarh. Had they known what he was up to, they would have stopped him. You see, the gorge he had chosen to build his site had been designated as protected land. His art wasn't just beautiful, it was an act of rebellion. Chand kept at it for 18 years until some health officials investigating the area happened to come across it in 1975. By then, he had already planted trees and created almost 2,000 sculptures from things he'd found on his bike rides to and from work. The city tried to have it demolished, but people came from all over India to see what Chand had built, not wanting to kill a possible tourist trap or admit that they hadn't been paying attention to something going on right under their noses. Chandigarh passed an order to let the rock garden stand. Chand was given the title of chief creator, which came with a salary and 50 additional workers who would help him expand and maintain his creation. He kept at it until he passed away in 2015. Not a bad ending for the man who built his city on rocks that roll. This episode is sponsored by Intuit. Here's a story for you. Once upon a time, a young woman was haunted by the ghosts of bad financial decisions, with credit card debt and an empty savings account looming over her every day. But when she tried to ignore these ghosts, they only grew bigger and scarier. And these ghosts of her bad financial decisions were stopping her from living her best life. So she decided to face them head on and take control of her finances with help from Intuit. Intuit helps you face your financial fears with confidence through products like TurboTax, Credit Karma, QuickBooks, and MailChimp. Whether you're trying to manage your money or trying to run a business, Intuit gives you the confidence to take control of your finances so you can live your best life. Intuit is the financial platform that helps everyday people prosper. Intuit has helped 100 million people live their best financial lives. Visit Intuit.com, I-N-T-U-I-T.com to start living yours. Let's get into it. Privilege is a double-edged sword. Those who have it become accustomed to the comfort it brings, whether that comfort is monetary or knowing they'll never have to work as hard as others to get ahead. They believe they're invulnerable to poverty, illness, and the rest of the world's problems plaguing the less fortunate. For Michael Rockefeller, privilege allowed him to travel the world and have the kinds of experiences most people only dream of, but it also came at a cost. Rockefeller was born in 1938 to Mary and Nelson Rockefeller. His father, grandfather, and great-grandfather had made their last names synonymous with wealth and power. From Standard Oil to U.S. Steel and the U.S. Vice Presidency, the Rockefellers never knew anything but a life where the best was rarely good enough. Michael was one of seven children and attended the finest schools growing up. However, he didn't coast on his family's name or reputation when it came to his schoolwork. He was smart and had many varied interests. He gravitated toward art and history, much to his father's chagrin. Nelson had wanted his son to follow in his footsteps, which meant putting on a suit and managing the family's business affairs. Michael, though, chose a different path. By the early 1960s, he was working on his graduate degree in anthropology at Harvard when he got the idea to visit a place rarely seen. 
It was an island off the coast of Australia called Papua New Guinea, known then as Dutch New Guinea. The young Rockefeller had secured permission from the Dutch National Museum of Ethnology in the Netherlands to take a trip to the island. He would be traveling with the express purpose of obtaining art made by the native Asmat people who lived there, which he would then put on display back home. The Asmat people of the Otsjanup tribe greeted Rockefeller and his team with trepidation. Many had never seen white men before, nor had they ever seen technology such as cameras. Though the indigenous peoples of the island tolerated the Americans documenting them, one thing was clear. Rockefeller was not allowed to take any of their art. Violators of this one edict might meet an end similar to those of rival villages who dared cross the Asmat. Their heads would be cut off, and they would be eaten by the tribe. Rockefeller didn't worry, though. To him, the Asmat were primitive compared to his advanced Western ways. He would have been wiser not to underestimate them, though, as his hubris would be instrumental in his downfall. He returned to America knowing that he'd have to make a return trip to the island if he was going to get the art he needed for his new exhibit. In 1961, Rockefeller boarded a boat with an anthropologist named Renee Wassing for a second try. They had almost reached the village when their boat was overturned in a storm. The two men floated there, holding on to their capsized hull over 10 miles from the island. As Rockefeller bobbed in the water weighing his choices, he decided he would swim for it. I think I can make it, he said, and then Wasing watched him take off, unaware those would be his companion's final words. The future heir of the Rockefeller fortune was never seen again. A search was conducted over the following weeks for Michael Rockefeller's body. It was never found. One theory suggested that he was eaten by sharks on his way to shore. That premise was only half right. It took 50 years, but journalist Carl Hoffman eventually got the truth. Rockefeller's death had been covered up. He learned from members of the Otsjanup tribe that Michael had the unfortunate luck of being in the wrong place at the wrong time. You see, three years before his first trip to the island, the Otsjanup had gone to war with a rival tribe, and many on each side had been killed. The newly installed Dutch colonial government couldn't have these warring factions threatening their men, so they took matters into their own hands. They attempted to subdue the rival tribe. Unfortunately, a miscommunication led to four Otsjanup war leaders getting shot instead. To them, the other tribe was no longer the problem. White men were. Michael Rockefeller had, in fact, made it to the island after his boat had capsized. Those who caught a glimpse of him thought he was a crocodile at first until they got a closer look. When they saw that he was a Tuan, or white man, they figured he was part of the Dutch colonizers who had come to their village several years earlier. And to make matters worse, the specific Otsjanup who had spotted him had been the sons of the murdered war leaders. So they took their revenge out on Rockefeller. Michael Rockefeller had been born into a life of means. He believed himself to be above others, especially those of a culture different from his own. None of it mattered in the end, though. No amount of privilege would have saved him that day. It's a cautionary tale that teaches us a lot about respect and valuing our differences. It shows us what can happen when power gets in the way of peace. And above all, it shows us just how curious our world truly is. And sometimes, that's enough. I hope you've enjoyed today's guided tour of the Cabinet of Curiosities. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or learn more about the show by visiting curiositiespodcast.com. This show was created by me, Aaron Mankey, in partnership with How Stuff Works. 
I make another award-winning show called Lore, which is a podcast, book series, and television show. And you can learn all about it over at theworldoflore.com. And until next time, stay curious. Thank you.